yeah, answered in the next few minutes. Can we pray? Lord God, would you make me your vessel? Would you make me an offering everything that you want me to be? Lord, we are so grateful for your presence with us this morning. Would you inspire us again with your awesome power and your amazing plan for this planet and the people on it? Amen. Should we get into it? So this morning I'm in my uh, other role, which is as a speaker for Creation Ministries International, which is a global organisation that exists to build the faith of Christians, to give them more confidence in God's word, and to encourage them in sharing their faith with other people. We're effectively an information ministry to the church. So the Bible describes a flood, unlike anything before or since, that wiped out every living thing on this planet, except for a selection of people and animals on a huge lifeboat. But many people today doubt the reality of this scenario. So today I want to look at three things. Firstly, why some people are sceptical of the idea of a global flood. Secondly, why does it even matter? And thirdly, we'll look at some evidence supporting Noah's flood. So why do people doubt the truth of the biblical account of Noah's flood? I think firstly, there is general scepticism of the Bible as true and accurate. And this is the main reason that Creation Ministries exists. It's to defend the truth of the Bible as an accurate record of the history of the universe. The Bible says in 2 Peter 3, 5 and 6 that people willingly close their minds about the flood. For they deliberately overlook this fact that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Secondly, I think there are doubts about the practicalities of the ark. Could it have uh, physically achieved what is claimed? We'll look at that a bit later on. And thirdly, within the scientific community, an idea called uniformitarianism dominated geology for around 200 years. Now, this was popularised by Charles Lyell and James Hutton, and it's essentially the idea that when we look to explain the features on the surface of the planet, we can only use processes that we see occurring today. The catchphrase of uniformitarianism was the present is the key to the past. Now, this rule was based on a philosophy, not on scientific evidence, and it effectively excluded any catastrophic events like a global flood. James Hutton declared, the past history of our globe must be explained by what can be seen to be happening now. No powers are to be employed that are not natural to the globe, no action to be admitted except those of which we know the principle. Charles Lyell took a similar stance, and he even admitted to his desire to oppose the predominant belief of his time that the Bible gives a reliable history of our planet. In his words, he wanted to free the science from Moses. Warren D. Elman, director of the Paleontological Research Institution in New York and adjunct associate professor of Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at Cornell University. I need a round of applause after just saying that. <laughs> Stated about him, Lyell also sold geology some snake oil. He convinced geologists that all past processes acted at essentially their current rates. Elman also said, this extreme gradualism 
has led to numerous unfortunate consequences, including the rejection of sudden or catastrophic events in the face of positive evidence for them for no reason other than that they were not gradual. So, as I said, this arbitrary rule that explanations of geological features must be based on slow and gradual processes was not based on scientific observation. And what's more, the slow and gradual processes we see occurring today don't do a very good job of explaining many of the features on the surface of this planet. There's lots of evidence of catastrophe. So, I think that scepticism of the Bible doubts about the practicalities of the ark and the idea of uni uh, geological uniformitarianism are some of the main reasons why people struggle to accept the flood as real. Now some would ask, why does this even matter? Well, some of the reasons this does matter. You may have heard this statement, the Bible is not a science textbook. The implication being that it's only useful as a framework to give us more, uh, theological and moral guidance. Well, I would agree that the Bible is not a science textbook, but what the Bible itself does claim to be is a history book, covering the history of our planet and the whole universe from beginning to end. And much of the moral guidance provided in the Bible is based on the actual historical events described in it. But if we can't trust the Bible to describe the past, how can we trust it with our future? Did you know that we can describe the entire history of this planet from beginning to end in just seven words? The seven C's of history. This is simply a memory aid for recalling the seven major events in history, past and future, according to the Bible. The first C is creation, Genesis chapter 1. Next we have corruption, Genesis chapter 3. The fall, when humans first rebelled against God and caused the entry of death and suffering into the world. Number three is catastrophe, Noah's flood. Then we have confusion, Genesis 11. At the Tower of Babel, humans refused God's command to spread out and repopulate the earth, so he introduced different languages that forced them to move away from each other. Number five is Christ, when Jesus came to earth as a human. And number six, the cross, where Jesus was crucified and then rose from the dead. And the seventh C is the consummation, or the second coming, when Jesus returns for the second time in a manner very different to the first. So the flood is one of the seven most significant events to happen on this planet. Note also that in Luke 17, Jesus raised parallels between the reality of the flood, a past event, and the reality of a future event, his second coming. Another reason that this topic matters is that we need to be able to respond to questions and challenges about the Bible. The Apostle Peter tells us this in 1 Peter 3.15. People are constantly being told directly and indirectly that the Bible is a collection of myths that have been disproved by science and that it has no relevance for us today. We need to be equipped to defend the Bible against sceptical attack and show that it's incredibly relevant for every single person on this planet. A quick quiz to test your flood knowledge. How many of each kind of animal did Moses take on the ark? Incorrect. No. Moses didn't take any. <laughs> Noah took a few. <laughs> Sorry, that was a setup. Why did Noah build the ark from gopher wood? 
He didn't have an arc welder. <laughs> and do we know the name of Noah's wife? Yeah, we do, actually. <laughs> it was Joan of Arc. <laughs> Sorry for the dad jokes, but I'm about to become a granddad, so I'm going to have even more license for this sort of thing. It's only going to get worse. What does the Bible actually describe regarding the flood? Well, about 1,650 years after creation, human behaviour has got so bad that God regrets that he has created people. God identifies Noah as a righteous man in contrast to the rest of the people alive at the time. God confides in Noah that he's going to destroy all life on earth and commissions him to build a huge boat to allow for the survival of the people and the animals required to repopulate the earth after the flood. Noah obediently does as he is asked, and right on cue, the flood arrives. Water completely covers the surface of the earth, being supplied by both non-stop rain and subterranean sources for a period of 40 days. The water level continues to rise for another 110 days until it covers the whole earth, including the mountains. The flood drowns all living things, except those on board the ark. Then the flood waters begin to subside. This takes another 210 days, during which time the ark runs aground on the mountains of Ararat. Noah waits until the earth is fully dried out and there is evidence of plants regenerating before disembarking with his family and all the animals. A very welcome prospect for all involved, I imagine, after a year on board. God promises never to destroy the earth again by means of a flood. It's an important point we'll come back to later. He instructs Noah and his family that they are to repopulate the whole earth. So now I want to give some further explanation of some of the points that may not be obvious from a quick read of the biblical text. I mentioned before that the flood drowned all living things except for those on board the ark. But we need to define what is a living thing in the biblical sense. God makes some general statements about destroying all living things in the flood. For example, Genesis 6.13. I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And Genesis 7.4. Every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. But he also makes some more specific statements defining what he means by all living things. Genesis 6.17. I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. In Genesis 7, 21 and 22, And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. The biblical word life in this context comes from the Hebrew word nephesh. And we can deduce the meaning of nephesh life from various verses in the Bible. I won't give you all the detail here, but we can determine the following points about the biblical definition of life. Nephish life is normally translated as living creatures when referring to animals, or living soul when referring to humans. Nephish life conveys the sense of a, of a breathing creature, and it links life with the presence of blood. Land, vertebrate, land vertebrates, animals with a backbone, are included, and fish, uh, sorry, birds are included. Fish are considered nephish creatures, but they're not included in God's description of the animals destroyed in the flood and been shown to be tolerant in ranges, variations in salinity. 
So they could survive the flood without assistance. What is excluded from this definition of life? Insects. Insects don't breathe through nostrils, but through tiny tubes in their exterior skeleton. And they don't have blood in the true sense. Also, insects would be capable of surviving the flood on floating mats of vegetation. Single-celled organisms, like bacteria, are not regarded as nephish life, and nephish life never refers to plants. Another thing that may not be obvious from the text is the enormity and the violence of the flood. The flood was not a tranquil raising of water levels, but it was an incredibly catastrophic and destructive event. Noah's flood involved huge amounts of energy. Nothing we see today comes even close. It involved volcanic and tectonic activity on a massive scale. The whole surface of the earth was dramatically reshaped. This is supported by the verses in the Bible that describe the sources of the water. Genesis 7.11, On that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth and the windows of heaven were opened. The windows of heaven obviously refer to torrential rain. The fountains of the great deep could refer to subterranean water sources. Another possible explanation for this is that as the te tectonic plates began to move apart, seawater would have flowed into the gaps, contacted molten magma, and been converted into superheated geysers of steam, which would also then contribute to more rain falling. So we've looked at why this matters and what the Bible describes. What evidence do we have that this event actually occurred? We have evidence both from within the Bible and also outside of the Bible that supports Noah's flood being a real, historical, global event. From within the Bible, firstly there is the description of the flood itself in the book of Genesis, which by the way is not written in the style of poetry or symbolic writing as some claim. It's very clearly literal narrative or history. Then there's also support for the flood from the writers of the New Testament. Jesus and some of the New Testament writers referred to a real global flood. Luke 17, 26 and 27, Jesus said, Just as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Peter also tells us in 2 Peter 2.5, If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. There's also lots of evidence from outside of the Bible. Let's take a look at some of that. First up, flood legends. Now, if a global flood had occurred as described in the Bible, we would expect to find mention of it in the history of various cultures around the world. And this is exactly what we find. Legends of a huge flood in cultures all across the world. For example, there was the Gilgamesh epic described on tablets from ancient Mesopotamia. The Australian Aboriginals have several flood stories. There are others from uh, the Aztecs, the North American Indians, uh, China, Egypt, Peru, Scandinavia. In fact, we find over 500 flood legends. They show amazing similarity with the Genesis flood, though being somewhat distorted by time and retelling. Usual features of these legends are that the gods or a god decide to send a deluge on the world usually as a punishment for some act. Certain human beings are warned 
or it may come without warning. But if warned, the people construct some kind of vessel, a raft, ark, a ship, a big canoe or the like, or find some other means of escape. Sometimes they also save certain things essential to a way of life. The deluge comes, rain, a huge wave, a container broken or opened, a monster's belly, punctured, etc. Bird or rodent scouts are often sent out, and when the deluge is over, the survivors find themselves on a mountain or an island. Sometimes they offer a sacrifice and then repopulate the earth, recreate animals, etc. by some miraculous means. So we find flood stories with striking similarities all over the world, exactly as we would expect if the flood were real and global. There were eight people on the ark, Noah, his wife, their three sons, and their wives. An interesting side note here is that the Chinese word for ship is a pictogram incorporating the symbols vessel, eight, and people. Interesting. The next piece of evidence is the fossil record. Now that fossils even exist in the numbers that we find is evidence for the flood. This is because fossils require quite rare and specific conditions to form. This includes complete and rapid burial, excluding oxygen and preventing carnivores from tearing the dead animal apart. And we find fossilized animals all over the planet in rock laid down by water. Are you ready for your amazing fact of the day? strapped in tight. The amazing fact of the day is that we find marine fossils at the top of Mount Everest. In 1953, Sir Edmund Hillary brought back rocks from the top of Everest that contained crinoids, marine sea lilies. In fact, there are marine fossils at the top of most mountain chains. Remember I told you how dramatically the flood affected the surface of the earth? This is powerful evidence of that. For example, we find clams on mountaintops. And interestingly, the shells are closed, which indicates rapid burial. Clam shells tend to open when they die in normal circumstances. This fits really well with the biblical model, which has today's mountain chains forming towards the end of or after the flood. We have a real fossil to pass around that you can have a look at this morning. It is a Phacops trilobite, which is an extinct marine arthropod. His name is Doug and he was very likely fossilised during the flood about four and a half thousand years ago. As a side note, secular scientists interpret the fossils in the different geological layers as a record of the development of living things over long periods of time. Biblical scientists interpret the fossils in the different geological layers as a sequence of burial of animals in the flood over a relatively short period of time. The less mobile ones being buried first and the more mobile ones being able to move to higher ground before being overcome by the floodwaters. Next, take, let's take a quick look at geology, which provides some fascinating evidence for Noah's flood. Geomorphology is the subfield of geology that studies the shape of the Earth's surface, and it's a goldmine of evidence for the global flood. The following is extracted from an article titled Geomorphology Provides Multiple Evidences for the Global, global Flood by Michael Ord. In the early 1900s, scientists thought it would be easy to understand the origin of landforms after they rejected the Genesis flood. But by 1974, C.H. Crickmay, a Canadian geologist, was amazed that after all these years, landforms still remained unexplained. 
He said that though there are plenty of hypotheses of geomorphic evolution, there is not one that would not be rejected by any majority vote for all competent minds. Crickmay is not alone. C.P. Green says it became increasingly evident after 1960 that no satisfactory understanding of geomorphological processes existed. This is an amazing admission. And the situation is pretty much the same today. Some of the landforms that need explaining. Mountains, perhaps the most prominent landform on every continent. The origin of mountains is still unknown. Evolutionary geomorphologists Cliff Ollier and Colin Payne wrote a provocative book in 2000, The Origin of Mountains, listing 20 different mechanisms proposed for the uplift of mountains, none of which can be demonstrated. Planation surfaces. These elevated flat-topped landforms covering large areas of the Earth are not forming today, and they're very difficult for evolutionary geologists to explain. In their 2015 book, Calvert and Gunnell State, such low-grade features are enigmatic. The chances of survival of planar landforms in mountain environments are slim. Inselbergs. These erosional remnants are steep-sided hills or mountains that sometimes stand alone in open plains. Ayers Rock, or Uluru in Australia, is the most famous example. They're usually said to be millions of years old, but if that were true, they would have eroded away completely long ago. According to one secular scientist, the early geomorphological history and the fundamental reasons for Ayers Rock remain obscure, though various possibilities have been suggested. Pediments. These smooth, flat planation surfaces commonly occur alongside mountains, ridges or plateaus. They are gently sloping, nearly flat surfaces of bedrock. Murray Strudley and P.K. Haff stated, the curious and ubiquitous nature of this landform suite has baffled geologists for over a century. Hard, rounded rocks transported long distances. Pediments and planation surfaces are often covered by hard, rounded rocks. These can be found on mountaintops and also piled up thousands of metres deep in cracks in the Earth's surface. These were clearly rounded by water and also transported by water very long distances, more than 1,000 kilometres from their source which is impossible to explain by the geological processes we see today. Water gaps. Water gaps are where rivers appear to have chosen to flow through mountain barriers when there was an easy downhill path around the barrier. And there are literally thousands of water gaps around the world. Thomas Oberlander, who has extensively researched water gaps, describes them as a geomorphic problem, and he laments the apparent absence of evidence for their origin. Finally, looking at submarine geomorphology, the mysteries for secular geologists also con continue under the ocean. They are unable to explain the origin of the very thick border of sedimentary rocks called the continental margin that surrounds every continent and even large islands. In some places, erosional canyons have cut through the continental margin. They can be thousands of metres deep and hundreds of kilometres long. They're huge. Some are deeper than the Grand Canyon. Again, secular geology has difficulty explaining them. H.D. Hedberg stated, there is considerable controversy as to the origin and detail of continental slopes. It seems evident that there is no unique answer. The Genesis flood clears up all these apparent mysteries. Yeah. 
The majority of the erosion and deposition of the Earth's surface took place during the runoff of the flood water, when the mountains and continents rose and the ocean basins sank. The water first flowed as wide currents. Then as more mountains and plateaus were exposed, the water was forced to channelise around these obstacles. The rapidly flowing wide currents planed the surface flat and deposited hard rounded rocks that were transported hundreds of kilometres from their source. Occasionally tall inselbergs like Ayers Rock were spared from destruction, leaving them dotted over some planation surfaces. The channelised flow carved valleys and canyons, in some cases cutting through rock that were assumed to form mountain ranges. This explains how water gaps are found often uh, today, cutting through mountains and ridges rather than going around them. The rapid channelised currents flow down valleys forming wide flat pediments and capping them with rounded rocks. These currents didn't stop as they exited the continents but were strong enough to cut deep submarine canyons and the newly deposited sediments on the continental margins. So not only does the Genesis Flood explain all these so-called mysteries of geomorphology, these landforms are found worldwide, confirming again that the Flood was actually global, as the Bible records. This may seem a little left field, but I want to look briefly at ice ages. So what do we know about ice ages? Well, there are hundreds of land features around that are similar to existing glaciers, some of which can only be formed by ice. So it's reasonable to assume that there was at least one ice age. Secular science proposes several ice ages, possibly as many as 50 over the past 2.6 million years. But secular science also has a real problem explaining what could cause one ice age. There are over 60 theories, and they've been wrestling with this issue for over 200 years. Climate expert Didier Payard, writing in Science about the so-called ice ages, said that the big challenge is to build an ice age theory that works, and he admits that a final solution still eludes us. Creationists propose only one ice age, about 4,000 years ago. Any idea what might have caused it? Noah's flood created the perfect conditions to cause an ice age. There are three conditions required to initiate and maintain an ice age. Firstly, we need cooler summers than now, or the ice sheets would thaw. Secondly, we need increased precipitation and moisture from the atmosphere. This would fall as snow in the cooler latitudes. And thirdly, the climate disruption must persist for hundreds of years to allow the ice sheets to form. As I said earlier, the flood involved lots of volcanic and tectonic activity as well as meteorite impacts. Volcanic particles in the atmosphere blocked out the sun and cooled the earth down. Warm seas from the volcanic activity and the addition of subterranean water created increased evaporation. Subsequent storm activity on a huge scale dumped massive amounts of snow which would turn to ice. The dust in the atmosphere from meteorite impacts and volcanoes would gradually sink out of the atmosphere but was being replaced for a time by post-flood volcanism. So the earth remained cool for hundreds of years. Eventually the volcanic particles would clear, evaporation would cool the oceans down and less moisture generated by the cooler seas would create less snow and the ice age would wind down. The ice age is estimated to have peaked in about 500 years and taken another 200 years to wind down. And in case you're wondering how people survived the ice age, it can be helpful to clarify that an ice age doesn't mean that the whole planet is covered in ice. 
it just means that the ice age, uh, sorry, the ice sheets increased in size and moved further towards the equator. So the ice age is strong evidence for the flood, and it's difficult to explain without the flood. Some more interesting evidence that supports the flood is straight dinosaur tracks. We find dinosaur tracks all over the world, almost always in straight lines, which indicates that the animals were panicking. Animal tracks tend to meander when they are relaxed. We also find evidence of swim tracks left by dinosaurs. Dr. Taz Walker describes swim tracks. He says swim tracks are found all over the world, including dinosaur tracks in northern Spain, which consist of claw marks made in the sand surface as the animal was on tiptoes trying to move through deep, flowing water. So this has been just a very small selection of the evidence supporting the flood. We actually have masses of evidence, both from within the Bible and outside of the Bible, that supports Noah's flood as being a real event. As I said earlier, the Bible itself and the flood story are subject to quite a bit of sceptical attack. But analysis of the known facts shows us that all the questions raised can be answered quite easily. Let's just take a quick look at some of the supposed challenges levelled at the story of the flood. One thing that can help encourage the idea that the whole story is impractical and a myth is the cartoon-style caricatures of the ark that we often see that make it look like an overloaded bathtub. When this is our default image of the ark, we can forget how enormous this vessel really was. Over 130 metres long, cargo space of 43,000 cubic metres, 15,000 tonnes capacity, equivalent of 522 railroad wagons, more than capable of carrying the required number of animals, and also shown to be an extremely stable design. We've got a scale model of the ark that we'll pass around this morning that you can have a look at. It just gives some idea of the size and shape. Another question that, uh, is where did all the water come from and where did it end up? Well, I would suggest to you that there was plenty of water available and that it's still there. The earth holds vast amounts of water. When we look at a globe of the earth, we're normally focused on the green bits, but next time you do that, have a look at the blue and you'll notice that most of it is blue. In fact, 70% of the Earth's surface is covered by water now. And if we leveled the Earth's surface, water would cover the whole planet to a depth of 2.7 kilometres. The high mountains we see today didn't need to be covered by the flood because they didn't exist then. Mount Everest is 9 kilometres high, but today's mountains were formed at the end of or after the flood by tectonic activity. And this is supported by the evidence that I gave earlier that the layers in the uppermost parts of Mount Everest are composed of fossil-bearing, water-deposited layers. So the amount of water is no problem at all. A humorous little side note here is that that demonstrates the effect of uniformitarian thinking. Mars has almost no water, but uniformitarians have decided that there is good evidence of massive flooding here in the past. But when asked about this soggy little planet we live on, they confidently declare that there is no evidence for any global flood here. British geologist Professor Derek Ager put it well when he said, we have allowed ourselves to be brainwashed into avoiding any interpretation of the past that involves extreme and what might be termed catastrophic processes. Now some would suggest that it was just a local flood. But this idea falls apart very quickly when we read the flood account and think logically about it. The Bible says that the flood covered all the high mountains under the entire heavens to a depth 
of eight metres. If you think about it, it's impossible for a local flood to cover all the high mountains under the entire heavens. If not a global flood, why have an ark? It could have just moved out of the area affected. If not a global flood, why have a vessel big enough to hold all vertebrate animals? If not a global flood, why have birds on the ark? They could have just flown to an area unaffected by the flood. If it was only a local flood, then God would have repeatedly broken his promise never to send such a flood again. There have been countless major local floods throughout history. There are many more reasons to accept the flood as indeed being global. Returning to the capability of the ark to do what was required, we need to ask the question, what was on the ark? People often overestimate the number of animals that needed to be carried. In Genesis 6, 19 and 20, God tells Noah to bring a pair of every kind of animal, that's Noah, not Moses, <laughs> into the boat with you to keep them alive during the flood. Now this sounds impossible when we think about the huge numbers of different types of animals around today. However, the Bible doesn't say that the variety of animals we see today were all on the ark. It says that two of every kind of animal came on board. Now we don't know with certainty what the biblical term kind describes, but it's probably most closely represented by the word species today. A common definition of species is a group of organisms which can interbreed and produce fertile offspring. God pre-programmed huge genetic variation into each animal kind. So for example, there didn't need to be pairs of horses and donkeys and zebras on the ark. One representative pair of the equine kind carried all the genetic variation needed to diversify into those different types after the flood. Similarly, one pair of the canine kind on the ark would later on diversify into dogs, wolves, dingoes, coyotes, foxes, jackals, and so on. And the same story with domestic cats, lions, tigers, leopards, cheetahs, and so on. And we find that this diversification from a smaller number of original kinds in a, in a type of genetic bottleneck is actually supported by the modern study of genetics. This model is also supported by the animal hybrids that we see today. For example, ligers and tigons, hybrids of lions and tigers. And geep, the offspring of a goat and a sheep. Zonkey, you can probably work that one out. <laughs> there are also zorses and zonies. Wolfins, the name was first applied to the hybrid of a false killer whale and a bottlenose dolphin born in captivity in the 1980s. Now, wolfins not to be confused with wolfins, the hybrid between a dolphin and a wolf, <laughs> which is so rare, it's only ever been seen on Photoshop. <laughs> Just kidding on that one. Interbreeding is only possible between animals that originated from the same kind. So because only two of each kind were required, we're already looking at a huge reduction in the number of animals needing to be carried on the ark compared to what we see on the planet today. Remember that God brought the animals to Noah and he chose representatives of each kind that carried enough genetic variation to be able to diversify into all the subspecies that exist today. And we can reduce the number even further when we remember that insects are excluded from the biblical definition of living things and that fish didn't need to be carried on the ark. Another consideration is that the animals didn't need to be fully grown adults but would most likely have been smaller juveniles. 
Even most dinosaurs are not that big. The average size is about the same size as a buffalo. One study has suggested that the median size of all the animals on the ark was about that of a small rat, with only 11% being much larger than a sheep. It's been estimated that around 8,000 kinds or 16,000 individual animals would have needed to be carried. So back to the physical size of the ark. At 137 metres long, 23 metres wide and 13.7 metres high, with a volume of over 43,000 cubic metres, it was enormous. Now some people question the ability of so-called ancient people to even construct a vessel of this size, but we have evidence of other ancient ships of this sort of size indicating that it was technically feasible for people of this era to build a ship like this. What about the food that was needed? How was waste dealt with? Feasibility studies have been carried out to address and answer all these questions, including the seaworthiness and stability of the ark, which was excellent due to its shape and dimensions, according to a study by a naval architect. So I hope you can see there's lots and lots of evidence in a wide variety of areas supporting the biblical account of a real global flood with a real ark providing the means of escape for enough people and animals to start again and repopulate the planet. This has just been a very brief overview, but for lots more information about the ark, go online to creation.com. So having established that there is heaps of evidence supporting Noah's flood as a real event in history, we come full circle and ask again, why does this matter? The Bible is not only an accurate record of the history of the world looking back, it also gives us some incredibly important information about our future. The Bible tells us that this planet as we know it will end when Jesus returns for the second time. There's a fascinating passage in 2 Peter in the New Testament of the Bible. We looked at part of this at the beginning. It says, Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these, the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. Three interesting pieces of information from this passage. Firstly, even as people cast doubt on the truth of the biblical account, the Bible predicted that they would do this. Secondly, did you see the reference in there to uniformitarianism? The idea that only currently observable processes can be used to explain what we see in the world around us. And thirdly, the Bible tells us that Jesus will return to earth again, and it links the reality of his second coming with the reality of Noah's flood. When people discover that the Bible is a reliable record of the history of this planet so far, they're much more likely to take seriously what it says about the future. Referring again to the seven seas of history, the seventh sea, the consummation, describes how Jesus will come to earth for the second time in a manner very different to his first visit. The first six seas have occurred exactly as described in the Bible. How foolish would we be to think that the seventh sea, the consummation, won't also happen as predicted in God's word? So as we've talked about Noah's flood being a very real event, 
hope you've been encouraged to trust God's word as a reliable record of the rest of history. I hope you've been encouraged that sceptical challenges to the flood story can be answered easily. And I hope that inspires you to talk to others about this hugely significant event, event in the history of this planet and the human race. Almost everybody was unprepared for the flood. And many people will be unprepared for Jesus' return. Can I encourage you not to fall into the group described as scoffers in 2 Peter 3, drifting through life, believing that things will always continue as they have. Instead, we need to be focused and alert, understanding the true history of this planet as well as what's to come. I want to give the final word to God. In Isaiah 46, 9 and 10, he says, I am God. There is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done saying, my counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish my purpose. Yeah. Thank you for listening.